Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Censored, the podcast that will never get to the end of the filth. I'm Aoife Fritnach, and as I reach the last episode of Season 7... I have to admit that I've yet to be corrupted by a truly bad book. But I do think the language of censorship is getting into my head. Seeing the world through the censor's spectacles might be a teeny bit dangerous. There's something seductive about thinking like a censor, not least because they get all the best lines. The Censorship Act spoke about unwholesome literature like books were food that could go rotten or putrid. It then goes on to mention unnatural vice, followed by corruption and depravity. It's so bombastic and overblown, but so compelling. I often find myself rolling the words around to savour the madness. I know I'm not alone in my weakness for the rhetoric of censorship, which is why I have invited Dr. Lloyd Maeve Houston back again to talk to me about this shared obsession. Hi, Lloyd. Thank you for coming back to the podcast. Yeah, can't keep me away like a like a fart in a lift. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So today we are going to talk. Well, we're going to talk shite, really, and we're going to talk in a vague general way um, and have a bit of fun with the mad language that comes up in censorship because it's one of the things that I have cited various bits and pieces throughout the episodes as have you but you know it really deserves a bit more focus on the rhetoric and the style and the sort of the texture of it really linguistically. Absolutely yeah it's because um, I think it, it you know obviously it, it tells you so much about the sort of underlying cultural politics of it and in sometimes like surprising ways i think so you know obviously it's not inaccurate to think of the the censorship act and and everything that's sort of fed into it and out of it as you know belonging to a fairly sort of trite mode of catholic moral panic but actually when you look at the language they use to kind of articulate that panic and the things around which it tends to center um and you start to kind of contextualize that more broadly with like what's happening in, in other european nations or in other sort of censorship regimes it um it does it both heightens some of the things that are very weird in particular about ireland but it also actually exposes continuities that um that i i find certainly quite quite interesting 
Yeah, it's one of those things where they say things like degeneration and corruption and evil. And it all sounds, quite frankly, now it sounds mental, but it wasn't that unusual for those languages to be used around artistic expressions that were new and foreign. And that's what's fascinating is that it's part of the zeitgeist in Europe, America and Ireland. You know, it's not just crazy Catholics in Ireland, really. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, one one of, in, in my own sort of research, one of my sort of re- recurring arguments is obviously that, like, yeah, I mean, without going too deep into the sort of historiography around it, obviously there's there's a fairly long-standing school in the sort of Tom Inglis mode that, like, points to, you know, the moral monopoly of the Catholic Church as sort of a way to suggest that Ireland never undergoes the sort of invention of sexuality in the kind of medicalized sense that you know people like um Foucault catalog um and that Ireland you know remains principally in this sort of moral mode of censure and critique um and you know to my mind like just because someone's wearing a dog collar or a habit when they're you know calling you like a degenerate or when they're you know ensuring that certain sections of the population can't reproduce themselves like by incarcerating them or 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 whatever you know that's that's still eugenics or that's still you know a medicalized policing of um of sex and desire even if it's being conducted in this notionally sort of pietistic rhetoric and a lot of the time the language they're using isn't even that kind of Mm. you know god-ridden it's um it is as you say indebted to you know yeah, kind of um, that whole sort of Max Nordau language of, you know, degeneration and the idea that, like, it's not just anarchists and criminals who are degenerates. It's also the artist. Um, and Ireland features weirdly, like, Ireland actually kind of um, ranks fairly high in his um, sort of uh, list of, of offenders. Like, Oscar Wilde is one of his big uh, kind of exemplary figures of the... Um, the, the, the degenerate turn that um, contemporary culture was taking. Albeit, I mean, it's it's before the trial, so it's not so much Wilde's queerness that he's kind of after there. It's the, like, unseriousness and the flippancy mm. and the kind of self-stylization and um, the the effeminacy, but not necessarily just in, in, the, in the, the sort of gender non-conforming sense of that. Mm. Um, but yeah, so like yeah, these these lads are, are, are far from immune to, uh, to that kind of, um, that mode of thinking. And a lot of the people who use the rhetoric around censorship, they're not just priests either. There's a lot of politicians way into this and they use languages that are really deeply nationalistic and then using that nationalism to, you know, express really profound and quite disturbed Anglophobia, like that Britain is, and Europe, but Britain especially, is really out to get you and is really like dirty in a physical and moral sense, like will actually taint your soul. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. My God, like the the, the number of images of like effluent, uh, like these, they they wax really poetic about how like filthy the English are. Um, I mean, D.P. Moran and and people like that, you know, um, basically like uh, construct a whole, you know, their own 
idiom of like um reprobation for for the english with all these um you know kind of um nicknames like sludge and bung and um i mean he's like like dp dp morin would have thrived in today's internet culture mm. like he he would have been the king of twitter oh. um like, oh, do explain for people who don't know who dp morin is sorry yes so dp morin was um a he was the editor of a newspaper um called the leader through uh i mean it, it sort of came online in about 1901 i believe um and survived in various forms into the sort of 20s its apex of kind of influence on the the culture um was certainly in the first decade or so of the 20th century he's also the author of a series of articles that were published as the um the philosophy of irish ireland which is a, a very influential sort of touchstone for a certain kind of gaelic revivalism i mean Morin's definitely one of those people who's like we should all speak the irish language watch me proceed to use like three words of irish across the entirety of my oeuvre <laughs> um... he pretty much set the standard for irish cultural life there didn't he? <laughs> um you know he'll he'll occasionally say that something is Ramesh or so you know but that that's about as far as we sort of get with it um but even with that he talk i mean in in the philosophy of Irish Ireland he talks about um he goes after people like Yeats um for perpetuating what he calls this mongrel thing Irish literature in the English language and there are like reviews in the leader of um you know things like um Yeats and George Moore's Dermot and Grania, where he, uh, the reviewer, I don't know if it's um, Moore and himself, I think it might be one of his sort of staff writers, but you get this reviewer talking about how, like, the English mind has taken the Irish myth and dragged it through the streets and, like, there's there's this very thinly veiled suggestion of, um, of kind of uh, a, a, like, sort of sexual assault and then sort of return you know, brought it back to sh- to show you know to display its kind of mangled dress in front of the um the the green tinted literati who <laughs> sip their tea <laughs> like a little green gossip with their tea or so there's this really sort of i mean the underlying politics of this i'm in, you know have very little time for the bitchy elan with which it's doled out <laughs> I, I i like gives me life yeah. um, it's so catty <laughs> I have to say that although, like you say, the politics is so wearisome and really grotesquely disturbed that it's quite upsetting, but the language that they use at times, you can't help but sort of admire them in a twisted way that they're able to create these effects, you know, that they're able to provoke clearly, I think, very strong emotional responses because the power of what they've written it just jumps off the page, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, it's 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 also, I think it's a, and I would say this, um, but I, I'm under examined aspect, no, uh, <laughs> that, that I will address in my forthcoming monograph. No, um, yes, yes, forthcoming monograph. Trailer, trailer, yes, yes. Um, link in the description. <laughs> um, no, um, th- there's, I think something that people have overlooked is the way in which someone like, you know, Joyce, who thrives on verbal excess, he he learns a great deal from and takes a great pleasure in this sort of vituperative language. Like he obviously, again, would be deeply impatient of the sort of purity, the spurious purity that's being kind of fetishized in a lot of this rhetoric. You know, he there's a very famous letter he writes to his brother Stanislaus where he's like talking about the lying drivel about pure men and women love forever that... um uh, you know, that that uh, certain strands of like Sinn Féin are, are, are sort of pro- propagating. 
but he he absolutely adores um you know this this the, the kind of richness of the um the language i mean there's and also i, I mean it's, it's as as you're uh, i guess as we're sort of alluding to here it's very easy to think of this censorship rhetoric emerging in the second decade of the 20th century right you know obviously the act the the, the committee on legal literature is 1927 the act's 29 but the groundwork for this is being laid, you know, almost a century before, right? You know, you've got even young Ireland who are fairly sort of ecumenical, um, you know, in the nation, you get these kind of um, invectives against Benthamy and like the influence of Jeremy Bentham through the English press and how that needs to be kept at bay. And like in the um, necessity for de-anglicizing Ireland, you know, that that kind of manifesto for the the revival um in in a certain mode that douglas hyde publishes um in 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 the 1890s he talks about how the irish need to set their faces sternly against penny dreadfuls shilling shockers and still more the garbage of vulgar english weeklies um in favor of everything that is most racial most smacking of the soil and you know, as as I and um, people like um, Alan Graham, who has a really good chapter about this in a collection on science, technology, and Irish modernism. Um, if you want to, if your readers are in search of that, or listeners are keen on that, um, but he he talks about how like anxieties about like degeneration and how like the corruption of Ireland by like how Anglicization is figured as like this corrosive sort of infection of the um the irish the purity of irish culture um in a way that like productively hovers between being sort of literal and metaphorical or you get like hold on sorry i mean you've got me into the sort of like greatest hits of <laughs> there's a an article in the leader um on uh waterford and pernicious literature from from 1913 pernicious literature just yeah. love it <laughs> The, the leader are like just like calling out the anti-pernicious literature campaign of Waterford being like, lads, you're phoning it in. You're phoning <laughs> this. This isn't up to snuff. Um, you're missing so, the real pernicious literature. Yeah, no, no, no. They say, they say that the, their, their members seem content merely to have established their reputations as pillars of Catholicity in the local press. But their ardor has cooled. The, the the literature microbe we are told is still with us, but the area of infection is narrowed considerably. Says the or sorry that that's the, the committee is pushing back there. Yeah. Um, so even this idea of literature as a microbe a is microbe. like microbe. Yeah, there was something in the in the Doyle debates when they are debating the bill, and one of the deputies talked about the secondhand books coming in from Britain. You know because. Mm. A lot of the small uh, lending libraries, private lending libraries, were stocked with secondhand stuff that had gone through various iterations in the UK and then moved over at the end of its life because, you know, there wasn't a lot of money in Ireland. So they wanted the cheapest books. And he talked about it like that the books themselves contained actual diseases, like you could catch <laughs> an actual disease from it and you would contaminate your mind. So it like it was a double whammy, like literal and metaphorical filth. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. With this um, Waterford thing, they follow up later with like a poem <laughs> about it. <laughs> um, the Waterford boys are no better, it seems, for purging their town of such ill-odored streams. The dirt <laughs> that young people corrupts and destroys receives little check from the Waterford boys. <laughs> um, 
So it's just like, yeah, this this idea of, you know, English mass culture as a, a, a sewage, you know, kind of sewage pipeline just spewing into into Ireland, um, sort of unshared. Or like, I mean, Illard Streams is, you know, um, it's pretty kind of uncomplicatedly scatological, <laughs> yeah. um, right? It's, I mean, uh, it's very Joycean, isn't it? <laughs> well, like, yeah, I was going to... <laughs> Listen to our Ulysses episode for just how much Joyce appreciated ill-ordered streams. I mean, for a crowd who were claiming not to read it, they were certainly borrowing that sort yeah. of imagery, weren't they? No, totally. And yeah, and that's that's the thing, right? There's kind of, and this is, you know, a lot of the, the sort of early critics of censorship um, in, in Ireland are very alive to this, like, you know, Bernard Shaw and to a lesser extent Yeats. I mean, they don't cover themselves in glory in these debates because they're pushing a pretty eugenicist agenda that we can maybe talk about later. But like um, one of the things that Bernard Shaw points out is that like, you know, censorship necessitates a mode of sexually pathological reading almost, uh, uh, you know, of its very nature. Like if you are looking for filth in everything you read, you will find filth in everything you read. You will be kind of encouraged to interpret everything as inherently sort of sexualized and i do think that that sort of is reflected in the in the rhetoric like there's a, there is a kind of you know there there is a charge to a lot of the language being used like if you, if you wanted to kind of crudely psychoanalyze this there's just you know you can picture them getting as worked up about about how filthy it is as you know um as the you know those corrupted and depraved by the matter in in question might there's such yeah there's a sense of this kind of sensationalism and there are you know a lot of over the top sometimes even gothic kind of hints i think but because we are still talking shite which is an appropriate <laughs> introduction um i'm going to read out one of my favorite bits and i read this out before in the cork angelic warfare episode which, I mean, even the name of them, like, you know, like the Committee of Evil Literature, Angelic Warfare, the whole thing. It's just... Were they the lads? Did they, did they seize um, shipments of books by like at gunpoint? Um, well, they they were burning newspapers principally. Yes, right. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. it alludes to a society of angelic warfare, um, like, yeah, kind of seizing matter and, and, and putting it to the torch. Yes, they were a, a Dominican sodality. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh, oh Ireland. <laughs> I know. Um, but yeah, so they had, in 1926, they had a, was it a 50 years of the sodality in Cork? Um, and the Dominican church in Cork is St. Mary's on the Keys. It's actually really beautiful. So they had a, a guest preacher and they were talking about how wonderful the sodality is. And uh, this is part of what was quoted in the newspaper because the great thing, and also the terrible thing about the Cork Examiner at the time is they devote acres to whatever sermon was going on in whatever Catholic church. I mean, if you want to know what the priests were saying, it's all in the newspapers. <laughs> so anyway, this was, I can't remember his name. I think he was from another parish. He wasn't a Dominican. It was grand to see the spirit of that sodality triumphing at a time when in the shape of bad books and so-called literature, the backwash of the dirt of Europe was breaking across our rock-bound coast, even flowing over and leaving a scum on the surface of our fair valleys and reaching even to the quiet hilltop homes and staining the health. Just... Staining the health is a, a gorgeous phrase. <laughs> you have to give it to them. Yeah. You know, like rhetorically, you can hear him saying it, you know. 
yeah yeah no exactly yeah right this is this is like pulpit rhetoric of yeah. the of the highest order um and especially in cold print it seems yeah it does seem mad but i can you can you can imagine that working and and the church was rammed you know there were like hundreds of people there for this now is to say they heard it there's no amplification but you know they were there they must have heard like got at least the tone i suspect yeah it's the same sort of like tides of of filth sort of yes and also like that i mean that that kind of um the, the topography of purity or like the geography of it i find really interesting there's there's so much of the kind of um again in ways that are like well-worn and unsurprising there's there's that kind of you know uh the, the west you know will remain kind of protected and, and or you know is, is maximally uncontaminated and it's really it's the it's the cities and the ports there's a whole kind of Sinn Féin uh the 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 publication um not not the uh, uh, not as yet the party um have a series of articles where they in very thinly veiled sort of terms talk about the need to basically in in articulating a sort of Arthur Griffithy you know um we need to be economically autonomous argument about taking over the ports frames it as a way of like stopping you know we must stop up our ports to stop the like influx of contaminating matter from england into the feminized nation and it's all yeah you know it's a bit gross and again for a bunch of people who are like oh these lads they're you know they're sullying and corrupting young irish women it's like your metaphors are, are all like you know figuring stuff from england as like dodgy cum like what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> um, uh there's the you know there's, there's a kind of well-worn tendency to like figure this matter in in, in a way that kind of evokes um like syphilis as well mm. often um it you know kind of po- like poxy or wormy or um kind of verminous there's um i mean in in that vein one of my i, I was just looking back through some of the um Dolan Shonad um, debates over the bill as it's it's sort of uh, making its way into um, to the statute books. There is a a really fun um, little anecdote that's shared by um, a kind of concerned um, Doyle member who um, they're a, a kind of they're an anti-treaty Republican. They're a big Gaelic leaguer. They uh, at least begin the remarks in Irish. I'm not sure the the, the record transcribes it in English. He says. It is my opinion that just as much harm is done by the cheap novels that are imported by the ton every week. They are distributed to the shops throughout the country and they are sold in an underhand way. They are bought principally by young girls, I'm sorry to say, and they go into almost every cabin in the country. A short time ago, I had occasion to visit a poor woman in an out-of-the-way place in County Meath, about three miles from Maynooth. This woman lived in a true-room thatched cabin, and a storm took away half the roof one night. She asked me to go out to have a look to see if I could do anything for her. This poor woman and I were sitting by the fire in the kitchen. The roof had been taken off the (laughs) Poor woman. (laughs) I mean, not playing to type at all in this particular story, no. It gets gets better on that (laughs) front. I saw on a shelf beside the chimney breast a box with some books in it. Biddy said I to the woman, I see you have some books here. Perhaps there may be some valuable old Irish manuscripts among them. <laughs> ah, bless his heart. Yeah, like. I know. May, may, may I have a look at them? She said that it might. I took down the box and examined the contents. There were about ten copies of the Irish Rosary. So far, so good. Okay, yeah. And just as many copies of these filthy novels. Novels with attractively coloured covers with their suggestive, immoral, filthy stories. 
I looked through one of them to see what they were like, and then I asked her where she got them. She said she got them to read from girls in the neighborhood. Now, what happened there is happening throughout the country. And as I said before, these books are principally getting bought by young girls. The result is that the girls are getting a taste for that sort of thing and their morals are being destroyed. Therefore, I say at least as much attention must be paid to the importation of these books as to the importation of newspapers. I mean, it's like there's so much happening in that story about like you've got this like Sean Van Vocht, you know, figure who's like... You know, and the idea, I, I, I can't, I mean, obviously hard to get tone from like print. So, you know, maybe his tongue was in his cheek when he's talking about finding old Irish manuscripts. But like this, I mean, A, good on Biddy. Like yeah. you, you, you get yours, hun. Like you, you read what you like. And <laughs> also isn't ashamed and doesn't deny it when he says, can I look at the box? She's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Yes, precisely. Yeah, that's that's what I I really love about that anecdote is that if you read it, you know, against the grain of the the moral panic that that's being sort of engendered by it, what you basically have is a a really fun inversion of traditional narratives of like corruption and censorship, right? You know, the 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 so, so many versions of the the kind of imagined reader in censorship are versions of like the the you know the vulnerable child or the you know those into whose hands it may fall. Typically means women young people or both and and uneducated people um you know the 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 kind of educated masculine reader can be trusted to you know remove his himself unsullied from this contaminating matter but here you've got like an oil an oil one you know an oil one being like corrupted by a bunch of local girls who are like sure read this (laughs) (laughs) this will get you going (laughs) in her like half destroyed house well at least the books would keep her warm you know also the temerity of this bastard to come round and be like ah your roof's off what are you reading (laughs) Um, i mean she obviously had him over in the hopes he would direct her towards some scheme to put the roof back on you know that she'd be able to apply or get some grant or like ask for some money and instead he's poking around in her private stuff <laughs> yeah but also i mean t- tellingly not as as you sort of said not all that private stuff right no. you know it's there on the mantle it's um and she's completely unapologetic about it when when yeah. questioned which i so you know it's uh it's one of the things where even within the, the the sort of self-justificatory rhetoric that that underpins so much of this there's there's a clear sense that like the granular sort of reality of um of you know the the reading habits of the the Irish public are are really at odds with um what's being done in their name there's another really fun moment in the debates where um and again it's really like kind of unintentionally self undermining but another doyle um member talks about like sure we don't need sex ed in this this country you know um everyone just watches animals go at it and <laughs> you know they learn everything they need <laughs> <laughs> the facts are the facts are widely known. Um, I mean, the basic facts, yes, but you know, yeah, you know, um, perhaps not adequate. <laughs> there, there, there are there are things that are not covered in bull Mount's cow <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a display, but um, but at the same time, there's this sense that no, 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 we must ensure that you know the 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 plain people of Ireland go uncontaminated by knowledge of sex which they already possess because they are the plain people of ireland you know there's this circularity (laughs) to 
to like what I mean, and you know that happens every time someone conscripts like the, the the peasantry in in the name of you know as, as an imagined entity in the name of a, a favored political cause but it's it gets really out of hand with, with this. What I love about that one about the girls handing out, you know, the attractively covered novels. I mean, attractive covers, how dare you? It should be the most boring of plain covers. But in that debate, most of the time, like you say, the, the person purveying the smut is an Englishman. You know, like mm. a man based in England, these filthy newspapers and he's putting them together and he's undermining the race. But yet in his story, you have Irish Collins, the yeah. epitome of St. Bridget <laughs> and Mary. And here they are with their filthy books, giving them to yeah. the old lady. <laughs> and I mean, and, you know, you, you can obviously you can track that forward into um or, or situate that with, within a sort of emerging panic around the single young woman, right? You know, um, Maria Luddy obviously has, has written very extensively on, on, on that score as, as of others about the sort of the emergence of, I think I, certainly Luddy's argument is that in the absence of the British to kind of, as, as a presence in Ireland to blame for things, it's now young women who are going to the bad it's the it's um you know the, the kind of the unmarried amateur you know in in terms of sex work or the you know the the young girl at the dance like that's that's what's going to kind of lead people astray like what watch yeah what watching um conservative irish politicians try and figure out who to blame for things like the presence of venereal disease in ireland after the british garrison is gone is one of the funniest things <laughs> like it really gets very kind of gymnastic in how the thing there's also like i mean it on that note of yeah kind of the conspiratorial element of this um oliver gogarty who makes some uh, fucking heinous contributions to these <laughs> debates um really uh you know he, he's um he's very anti-contraception hmm. um uh but manages to to mobilize some really racist and kind of anti-semitic rhetoric to kind of explicate that but you know um in terms of what the counter example is in England, um, which I'll, 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 we can maybe circle back to. But one of the things that he talks about in some of his contributions to the, the, the Shona debates are like how he says we need to ban the posting of marriage notices because when marriage notices are posted, that's when all of the English contraceptive companies start writing to Irish women to offer them contraceptive. What? <laughs> it's really... Where would they find the marriage notice in the papers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's basically saying like that's you know we need to get rid of that straight away. We don't they they, they can't be known who the married women are or no it's birth notices as well. It's it's um, oh right yeah. yeah it's like okay we can't let them know who the sexually active women are. Although and again what's really funny about that is that like implicitly Gogarty's point you know he seems to be conceding that like. Most women, if given the option, having had a child, would probably want to better regulate their fertility. <laughs> yeah, that they would get these unsolicited packages in the post and be like, cool, yeah, I won't say anything about this. I'm I'm okay. Yeah, happy days. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do not want to be having any more of these. <laughs> no, no, I've had five already. Yeah, could do with the break. <laughs> yeah, this is the... <laughs> I mean, it would be a great marketing technique, but I just can't imagine it would pay off in man hours yeah i it, it feels inefficient um, <laughs> to, to say the least but just the image of like you know english like birth control peddlers like scouring the irish times like for you know 
Ah, uh, lads, we got a direct marketing opportunity here. <laughs> nuts. nuts. It's that phrase that they use in the Committee of Evil Literature all the time, birth control propaganda. Mm. It's like, I, I read that for ages going, what are they, like, what do they mean by propaganda? And I was like, oh, they actually believe that information about regulating your fertility is propaganda. Yeah, just just acknowledging that it is it is possible and you know that that it might be beneficial under certain circumstances yeah. for certain. Because I mean that's the other thing. Like you know, obviously you've you've had this sort of fantastic episode about Marie Stopes, but like someone like Stopes is very strategically conservative in the ends to which she often sort of argues that birth control, um, you know, should be deployed. Or um, there's really as late as like 41, there's um, a moment where uh, the, the fellow's name eludes me, but a, a Catholic doctor who publishes a treatise endorsed by the the hierarchy in, I think it's the English hierarchy rather than the Irish hierarchy, which is part of the problem here, but, you know, endorsed by Catholic bishops. Publishes, oh, was that Halliday Sutherland? That's the boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. He publishes this you know, treat us on like, here are methods of contraception that are permissible within Catholic dogma, make of that information what you will, and and includes in that basically just some, you know, relatively light justificatory explanations around how, you know, there are instances where a further pregnancy would be damaging to a woman's health or potentially fatal. There are instances where, you know, there are potentially inheritable conditions that you would not want, you know, just fairly milk toast. Mm. Um, pragmatic arguments and it's and the, the you know the censure board have no no truck with that which which launches one of the i think actually the um the sort of the 47 reforms partly get kind of set in motion by some of the debates that are had around that because it's a it's a great opportunity for like um some some uh long-term opponents of the censorship to kind of be like even by your own standards, like you are now more conservative than the church you are <laughs> a- attempting to prop up. Like what? What are you doing, lads? Wasn't it the the censor who was in the Shannon at the time said that he took his um, inspiration from Moses? You know, so basically, like <laughs> I'm bypassing the church. And I, I don't know if that's allowed in Catholic theology. I don't think you can go to the Bible directly. I think that's the whole deal it's kind of where they have this 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 multi-level marketing organization <laughs> structure it's yeah. gonna stop yeah that. exactly <laughs> sorry that was a very glib characterization of well <laughs> not inaccurate I mean, I, um, it's just like but that's what protestants do yeah you know they go to Moses. that's that's what you say is a terrible idea i'm really confused <laughs> i mean like something i suppose we also it, it's it's worth emphasizing about some of that anti-birth control rhetoric is that it, it genuinely isn't confined to ireland right um so in you can you can see it in the committee of, uh, on, on evil literature right they to, to their credit as a slightly odd committee they do consult a huge like quite a wide array of different um national precedents from like australia new zealand and um france and italy and so on and like um they are so in some senses they're taking a lot of their sort of template on birth i mean birth control is a huge issue in that um their report like i i think the the longest chapter by far is the one mm. on birth control um material but 
Um, they are, you know, France in 1921 had um, passed legislation to prohibit the circulation of, um, you know, anti anti conceptual um, literature. Um, Mussolini's Italy, likewise, um, I think in about 1927, institutes um, kind of censorship uh, around um, contraception and abortion. Um, obviously, Nazi Germany has, you know, the kind of mother's cross, like pro natalism. Um, in in European nationalism in the 20s particularly is a big force and Ireland betrays a kind of nationally you know an idiosyncratic version of that that obviously is very bound up with um, or is more closely bound up with um, the teachings of the church and is obviously sort of reified or like reinforced through um, Casti Canubi you know that that encyclical that mm. um, where the, the 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 church explicitly um, outlines its arguments against contraception but Ireland is not alone in, in, in this. And a lot of the arguments that go to justifying it are comparable. Um, so phrases like race suicide. Yeah, that pops up a lot. Yeah, there is. Hold on, I'll see if I can dig up um, where JJ Byrne goes off on a, a big old screed about it. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um. Um, to the vast majority of the people, the limitation, the control of births, or the infliction of race suicide upon this nation. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a leap. <laughs> Stealthy rhetorical sleight of hand there, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> good 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 implied synonymy um uh is is one that is bitterly resented um anyone who's given it any consideration at all must see that in this matter we are behind the times if one looks at france america canada the commonwealth of australia tasmania new zealand and victoria he will see that action has already been taken in this particular way there appears to be an undercurrent of feeling that birth control is more or less in the interest of this state this um uh, and he goes on to kind of contest that so he says you know um, if one might refer with all respect to the great French nation, what has happened there? The French population actually exceeded the German population in 1850. Today, the German population stands at 69 millions and the French population at 39 and a half millions. Is that for the benefit of France? Does it call, not cause the gravest concerns to French statesmen that have the interest of the country at heart? It's a, you know, t- does it make for the production of a better race? Mm. And what is the effect upon a people for whom all moral responsibility, as far as the marriage ties concern, is removed? Now, there's a there's a complication here because to call that rhetoric eugenic 
would is a moderate misnomer because obviously eugenics is is partly about you know it is more comfortable with birth control than 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 that would suggest but certainly the idea that um the size of one's population is kind of you know can be elided or you know stands as a, as a sort of um index of the the strength and health of the nation um is a, a you know I, I mean eugenics is concerned with like differential birth rates in this period you know so the idea that like the 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 kind of the wrong people are more fertile than the right people the wrong people tend to be the physically and mentally disabled and poor people and the right people tending to be middle class people spoiler alert for <laughs> eugenics <laughs> for, i'm shocked <laughs> i know right um wild but uh but uh but certainly that i mean the that that kind of concern about um demographic decline is as that litany of other places suggests is is pretty widespread within european nationalism at that point and obviously ireland has particular reason to kind of get really anxious about the that sort of Malth, those malthusian anxieties it comes through more strongly in like criticism of the bill but People like, you know, Yeats explicitly alludes to it and uh, um, a few other sort of Protestant critics, a lot of the Protestant intelligentsia who comment on the bill, particularly in the pages of the Irish Times and stuff, invoke the famine as an example of what happens if the, you know, the improvident overbreeders kind of are allowed to propagate themselves unchecked. And there's a, you know, there's a, there's a not very thinly veiled sense that like, well, we saw what happened with that in 1847, which, you know, is a nasty way to um, weaponize that catastrophic event. Um, but equally, there's a, there's a kind of similar rhetoric in inverted form being deployed in some of the Catholic press as well. So you, you see a lot of like triumphalism in the Catholic press being like, ah, well, you know, the minority are looking like a real minority. And now that they're all using, you know, putting things on their mickeys, they're not going to be around for long, are they? They're going to be outbred before they know it. They'd better watch it. Yeah, yeah. There's there's an article called Superism and Race Suicide in the Irish Rosary. Of course there is. That, yeah, that, that collocates using contraception to take in the soup. Wow. I mean, they were so creative, really, you know? um hold on let me let me dig it out um just because there's there's some fun little swipes in there yeah the crime of race suicide notes our our our, um pseudonymous author uh has gained no footing among the plain people of ireland that is among the catholic people yeah thanks smith yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) just making a point the only plain people we're talking about are catholics yeah 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 the, you know, so if you look at the the sort of birth rate among the uh, the peasant classes in rural areas and the proletariat of Dublin, they're you know, they're they're all fitting well. By contrast, we're told Irish Protestants have become or are becoming tainted with the modern mania of race suicide. Um, when they cannot afford both a baby and a motor car, they prefer <gasps> the car. <laughs> oh well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Delta argues, uh, this, the, the, the person writing this does so under the pseudonym Delta, um, that on the unimpeachable authority of the Irish Times, that Protestants are heading for extinction by reasons of race suicide and are desperately striving to replenish their depleted ranks by methods of superism. Oh, it's always about proselytism, isn't it? They're just absolutely paranoid that they're going to be converted. 
But equally, I mean, you know, uh, a lot of the the sort of um, Protestant hierarchy are really concerned that like NATO Mare will, you know, is just a strategy to to see them outbred and to kind of weaken their, um, you know, intellectual and, and, and sort of cultural authority. So it's so much of this bill um, is actually a kind of proxy battle about who will exercise control over the sort of shape of the, the, the emerging state to my mind like it's it's really you you get a lot of arguments from like protestant critics of the bill basically sort of arguing that because catholics are inherently subscribed to the um the roman you know index liberorum prohibitorum that they won't be able to make up their minds freely about this topic so it's the intellectual it, there's a kind of like intellectual noblesse oblige on the part of the protestants to to kind of think this through more carefully for their benighted peers <laughs> They're priest-ridden peers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, to like, and in doing so, to save them from, you know, a, a Malthusian crisis. Sorry, I, I, I should say, like, the, Ma- Malthusianism, for um, those not familiar, is um, based on the work of the demographer um, Thomas Malthus, who basically was the first, one of the most influential people to suggest that if your population size exceeds the raw materials of your nation, that's going to be a problem. Um, and while he doesn't explicitly advocate the use of birth control, he's certainly for uh, forms of strategic family planning and becomes a really kind of significant figure for people who are advocating birth control and then becomes a, a significant figure to push back against if mm. you are yeah um yeah it's wild it's but again it's it's all this like apocalyptic talk of you know like extinction yeah. events and it's so end of the world like it's really weird to me in that we've just done this decade of centenaries in this great you know celebratory mode but it seems like the first few years of the state are a crisis emotionally and psychologically where everyone is like, so we've got this new state. OK, it isn't what we wanted politically. But worse than that, it's not what we wanted at all. It's it's falling apart at the seams. It's a leaking ship. We're about to sink. What the fuck have we done? You know, <laughs> they're panicking, you know. No, totally. And and, you know, and that's that partakes of a wider kind of moral panic that's obviously emerging out of the, you know, the aftermath of the first world war that's intensified in, in Ireland with the, um, the war of independence and the civil war. And yeah, the, the, the ways in which the, the emergent state seeks to kind of vouchsafe its own authority and integrity through um, these quite kind of performative acts of moral policing and this sense that like, that, that those conflicts have corroded the moral character of the the nation in ways that will compromise its like health and integrity are are everywhere apparent in the way this stuff gets discussed. There's a kind of um, you see it in the criminal law amendment act stuff as well, which obviously is what ultimately like formally prohibits the sale of contraception. There's interesting ways in which that kind of the you know that unpublished Carrigan report, which is the sort of basis for that, becomes this um, sort of touchstone, but also like feeds into everything from like Owen O'Duffy's you know um, kind of incipient fascism to like it, it's you know there, there's this real as you say yeah there's this this sense that if if something is not done the the nation will will unravel. Mm. But uh, or like, you know, be consumed in some sort of like mass self-destructive orgy or something. <laughs> um, everyone go to dance halls and, you know, <laughs> um, if people are partying till the wee hours and they're just having too much fun and the end of the world is upon us. Listening to jazz. <laughs> but it's interesting that because I've been thinking about moral panics and then conspiracy theories 
And I can't quite decide like which one it is primarily because there's this sense of conspiratorial, the big baddie, like when they say propaganda, when they talk about the British are deliberately producing this stuff in order to undermine Irish people. I mean, it isn't a, a byproduct of their commercial enterprise. It's the raison d'etre. And so there's that. But then there's all that sewerage, which is panicky. You know, <laughs> I just can't decide. It seems to oscillate between them. I, I, I mean, one, one need only look at our present political moment, I think, for, for kind of evidence of the ways in which these more quote-unquote irrational sort of negative you know negative emotions um that that shape political rhetoric how they coexist with a kind of conspiratorial mindset and obviously you know the the reassurance that conspiratorial thinking offers is is its capacity you know if 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 you assume that there are forces behind everything then nothing can surprise you and, and and what have you but um it's yeah i mean I, I wouldn't suggest that his views are like mainstream on this, but like you do also have instances, you know, Oliver Gogarty is, is, um, is pretty explicitly kind of subscribed to some version of the international Jewish um, conspiracy. And, you know, he, he does think that like we, we could devote a whole other episode to tracing the logic of his, how he thinks that like the jury, ha- you know, the quote unquote jury have like control of England and have like corrupted the English racial type, and that that England is trying to like export that to Ireland through things like you know British militarism. I mean, this is back in like nineteen no, you know, the first um, this pre independence. He's sort of making these arguments, but they come back again with um, the birth control thing. He's like, this is a, once again England is trying to kind of sap the the strength of the nation um, and turn us into a bunch of, you know, kind of racial mongrels um, like them. And while that's not, I I wouldn't, it would be um, inaccurate to kind of say that, that, that rhetoric gains much traction with other people. Like there is something about that kind of um, that register of panic that like, you know, resonates with things like the Limerick pogroms and some of the, you know, the, the, the kind of, um, stuff that um divan your man behind those is sort of you know his rhetoric about c- contamination and i mean you know i mean obviously partly this is just an index of how exclusionary nationalisms tend to use bodily metaphors a lot um so you know i don't want to confuse sort of cor- correlation with causality but um yeah i think there must be some com- compensatory sort of reassurance to be found in the idea that like the new state is struggling not because an emergent independent nation struggle ten, you know it has a different task ahead of it um and maybe the assumption that the english leaving would solve all of our problems was a naive one yeah i mean it's a it's a bit sunlit uplands really wasn't it yeah <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was like oh shit no so, so a lot of this might be our stuff as well yeah i mean it's something that i observed a lot in the um the poor law stuff from before independence where there was a real sense that they were just waiting, you know, they were like, well, we don't really have to figure out why this doesn't work, because once the English leave, it'll be fine, and the taxes will drop, and there will be manna from heaven every morning, and it will be absolutely great. And then the English left, and it turned out that running a welfare system is expensive, difficult, confusing, tedious, and you still have to go to committee meetings and decide if you're going to pay for roof tiles. 
And I think they were really disappointed. (laughs) This isn't fun. Like, it was supposed to be fixed. It was supposed to be fine. When do we get our hot girl summer? (laughs) Exactly. Um. It's like, why are we still sitting here talking about how to spend the same amount of money, or in fact, even less, because we appear to be poorer because we burnt a few poor houses down and we we have to pay for them now. It's like, they were so disappointed. I mean, there's also there's so much like kind of thwarted revolutionary potential as as well, which is like which is you know sort of genuinely heartbreaking in the, and again you know well well, well documented in um, a lot of the sort of you know decade of centenary stuff, like mm. how how quickly that um, those potentially sort of revolutionary forces turn kind of arch conservative. But it is really hard running things, like when you have no one to blame for the fact that it's not good. And that kind of, I mean, also that sort of protectionism, which obviously is another thing that's sort of at play here. I mean, while I want to be careful about extolling the virtues of, um, you know, economic liberalization or, you know, free trade as a, a panacea, like there's there's a sense that obviously the um, the kind of closed borders mindset that predominates in this and, you know, the, the effort to like kind of sustain an Irish publishing market through this as well that's kind of going on right that you know a lot of the contributions to this debate talk about how like there's just no hope of an irish um particularly like periodical press competing Mm. with you know um the the kind of volume that that england can turn out so there there is this um there's much to be said about how yeah like metaphors of, of bodily integrity coexist with multiple sort of layers of like protectionism around the, the nation as both cultural and and sort of um, economic entity. The body of the nation. It's just such an interesting concept, especially in censorship. Oh, my God. No, totally. Although I think it was uh, J.M. Coetzee said about the censor that they were inherently ridiculous because they were like uh, a man who's trying to control whether his penis stands up or not. <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, yeah, you know, we, we've talked before about, like, how one defines obscenity, but, like, that kind of, I know it when I see it um, yes. and feel it um, <laughs> is, is such a, a funny part. Like, Beckett, in, um, he has a, a, a unpublished at the time, but um, but now available essay um, about censorship that he writes for the, the Bookman. Um, I think we talked about it in, in that episode where he, like you know, talks about the Irish censor having better things to split than hairs, pubic or otherwise, <laughs> or like how the, you know, the the the, set, the particular kind of censor that the Censorship Act favours, which is the, the, you know, this kind of deliberately uneducated, like, you know, kind of common sense plain person um, will be, um, you know, at, at liberty to withdraw their, their streams from the, uh, the corrupting matter before they are spent. <laughs> so Beckett's like, you know, you'll be practicing a sort of intellectual like withdrawal method as the like how the censor can kind of do their work. Um and it's, you know, the yeah, this delicious sort of sexualized send up of even the, the kind of logic of censorship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that's the other thing obviously that permeates a lot of this is that there's a there's a sort of battle over um, intellectual authority and like meaningful notions of cultural value and what the state's duties are in that regard. And that's that's something that seems to sort of weirdly unite critics of the bill and people who extol its sort of virtues. There's a sense that ev- what everyone seems to get wrong about the effect of the bill is that it will target the the kind of periodical press, mass publications, and emergent mass media. It won't touch books. 
Um, and that's, you know, obviously sort of the direct inverse of what, what happens a lot of the time, particularly where Irish writing is concerned. But part of that seems to be that, yeah, like the um, one of the things that the state is now being tasked with guaranteeing because we're entering this phase of like the emergent welfare state, right, or a kind of interventionist new, new liberal state um, rather than the kind of classical liberal state that, you know, it's the job of the state to like improve the minds of its citizens or to kind of, you know, prescribe a, a sort of um, minimum level of, 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 of sort of intellectual matter for them. But then all of the kind of critics of the bill argue that like in sort of producing this like one size fits all, you know, kind of intellectual straitjacket for everyone that the state that actually will produce in Ireland that is incapable of recognizing cultural excellence, which again has all of this kind of eugenic baggage and how they talk about it. So it's, you know, it, it's, um, yeah, the whole thing is, is a mess. And, and like what you, um, again, to, to trail the book, like, um, God help me. Uh, trail away, please. <laughs> one of the things that, that there, there's, you know, there, there's a tendency to, at times to have framed this, you know, the sort of battle lines over censorship as between a sort of, you know, inherently commendable set of opponents to censorship mm. um, who are concerned with artistic liberty and um, opposed to this kind of pronatalism. And, you know, it, it's it's kind of um, unwarranted in, infringement on the um, the bodily autonomy of women. And then you've got, you know, a bunch of rabid Catholic um, sex phobes as, Bernard Shaw terms them <laughs> mad on heresiophobia or something. He, uh, but you know, once you dig into the the rhetorics that both parties are drawing on to justify their positions, it's more a difference of like degree mm. than kind. Um, in ways that are, yeah, that, like might complicate how we think about some of the figures involved. I mean, you know, it's no shock to anyone that you know that Yates is um on the. <laughs> is in a dubious kind of position on a lot of these topics but um it's uh you know it, it's sometimes easy to forget that like shaw um you know is an ardent eugenicist uh, admittedly a very weird idiosyncratic form of eugenics i mean beckett doesn't at any point wholly espouse a sort of set of eugenic ideals and he later critiques this um stuff in his own writing in, in quite interesting ways but he um but even with him there's a sense of like the censor in his writing gets figured as like a cephalopod, um, like cuttle squirting ooze from its, um, you know, he talks about how like stere- sterilization of the mind will bring about apotheosis of the litter. Um, and sterilize, you know, sterilization is, um, a, a loaded eugenic word. It was one of the things that was proposed for, um, physical and mental defectives was that you would voluntarily or involuntarily sterilize them. And, um, the point at which he's writing that essay, there's just been the Brock Committee in the UK, which was um, to kind of determine whether uh, the the UK would introduce sterilisation for um, for people in in um, uh, sanatoria and and asylums and things. So it's yeah, sorry, this has a real bummer note to <laughs> take things off to, but like what that there are no goodies and there are no baddies. I mean, I'm okay with that as a historical interpretation. <laughs> That's pretty much my whole podcast. <laughs> I mean, even Sean O'Fuelloin and the anti-censorship types, most people thought there was a need for some censorship. You know, they were mm, just like, mm. I don't like this particular one. So it isn't so much a point of principle as a point of policy and implementation, really. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, and that's another really important thing to kind of, like the number of times there's some kind of prefatory caveat where someone says, 
look, some form of censorship is, of course, necessary. Even if it's just to be like, I would like there to not be the books that I don't like. (laughs) I don't think my daughter should read books called The Golden Trollop and things like that. Yeah, as as you say, Shades of Grey abound. But, my God, the the, the rhetorical kind of... (laughs) intensity with which these <laughs> discuss the 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 elan is um no like like genuinely um to again to, to dear listener uh if you, <laughs> if you find yourself with uh you know a half hour despair um you can go you know you can access the the doyle and um shana debates um readily through the the Oireachtas, um website and just go just go through some of the censorship debates they are Wild. They are like, crackers. People run of themselves <laughs> talking about this stuff. My favourite part is sometimes they're having these interpersonal spats that mm. I have no idea what they're actually talking about. But, you know, there's all these digs, personal digs at each other and they're using the, the policy and the principle and they're like, well, oh, you know, <laughs> there's, there's of such course, drama. You my know? learned friend would say that. <laughs> because, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yes. a, whole, a bunch of queens. It's brilliant. brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely. Throwing <laughs> shapes, you know. <laughs> I think uh, that's a great way to end our discussion about vice and uh, shite. There was a lot of shite, actually. I think, fair dues. Yeah. Once again, Lloyd, you brought it to the table. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, if if that ha- if I have to have a personal brand, <laughs> let, let it be fecal. It's your own fault for, you know, obsessing about Joyce, really. He's, yeah, he's no. perverted your mind. Yes, I have been. I've been corrupted and depraved. The the, the, the matter fell into my hands and <laughs> and here we are. Uh, well, there's a nice um, there's uh, Senator John Keane talks about how in the intellectual development of any person, they must undergo a period of demoralization and then they. They emerge from that to intelligence, as as he puts it in, in one of his contributions to the debates. So that's that's the endeavour we're collectively engaged in, everyone. <laughs> Ultimately, the shite will turn out to be manure, basically, is what you're saying. There we... <laughs> I couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> it, is, it is always a joy. Um... <laughs> And yeah, if I, if I can sincerely plug the book, um, do to, plug the book. What's your working title? Um, so it's it's Irish Modernism and the Politics of Sexual Health, and I, I recently found out that it is it is under contract with OUP. So hopefully, we'll be sort of with, out within the year. But um, but yeah, in it, I look at the sort of how the medicalization and politicization of sex. You know, you can hear how that's been permeating all the conversation we've had. How that sort of shapes Irish culture from about eighteen eighty to about nineteen sixty. So start with the sort of the Parnell split, go through the Playboy riots, into um, you know Ulysses and its handling of like venereal disease, Beckett and the censorship um, sort of debates, Kate O'Brien censorship debates. Flan O'Brien and um, the exhaustion of sexual health, by which point the reader themselves is presumably <laughs> exhausted. Weirdly, it's weird how all of these chapters seem to coincide with things I've come on to talk about in this podcast. <laughs> Isn't it strange, yeah, though? <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to hear, you know, if you want to see this stuff written down, that's, um, you, you can find that there in a what I'm sure because it's an academic monograph will be a completely unaffordable form. So get your library to get it. <laughs> yeah, ask the librarian to buy it. 
And or just don't... send me an email and I will I'll send you a PDF. <laughs> well, I can't wait to read it. So I'm sure lots of people who listen to the podcast will be pestering their librarians to sign up for it as well. <laughs> I, I can only hope that the librarians will refuse on the basis of its, uh, you know, smutty content. <laughs> that is a risk. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Lloyd. It was great. My absolute pleasure. Now, just to say that season eight is coming up in September and I have so many great guests lined up. We will be reading pulp magazines alongside heavyweight literary authors like Graham Greene. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.